Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi. Hey. We're coming to you from like the future slash the past because we're re-airing a very popular episode from 2021. It is about obligation. And it just feels like a good reminder as we're entering the depths of summer and for what at least for us feels like a summer that is absolutely just like soaked in things we could or should be doing. Mm -hmm. And we should just ask ourselves, what happens if you don't? What happens if you don't? Truly. I also read this really good quote recently from Miranda Lambert that I'd like to like add on as an addendum Mm -hmm. to this episode, which is, if it's a maybe, it's a no. Erica, I love it. We're taking it with us. I saw this in the show notes and I've already been working working through it because also not related to obligation, but really good line for uh, purchases. Totally, totally. God, it's the dress arrives and you take it on, you try it on and you're like, I can't decide. It's a no. If it's maybe it's a no. Yeah, I love it. All right, with that. Welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazer. And I'm Erica Cerullo. If you want more where this came from and want to support us in general, head to a thing or two hq.com and sign up for Secret Menu, which will get you weekly access to members-only content. Also, just sign up for our Monday newsletter. It's free. Oh my gosh. There's nothing to lose. If you haven't done that yet? What? I mean, get it together. <laughs> to share your thoughts on this episode or anything at all, leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463 or DM us on Instagram at a thing or two hq. Something I've been wanting to talk about for a while. Mm-hmm. Pillows. Yes. You know why, Claire? Because mm-hmm. I've been on a real pillow journey, I feel you like, have. over I feel, the last really couple have. of years. Like yeah. more than most people, I would say. Yeah. You have you have been researching. You've been getting pillows for different body parts. You've been exactly. doing it all. Yeah. Body parts that never previously had pillows. So this started when I really got ahead of the pandemic and bruised my tailbone in mm-hmm. like... December, January, 2020. Yeah. Because we were working from home then and working from home in chairs that were not suited to working from home. And turns out if you sit on a wooden chair all day for uh, weeks, you bruise your tailbone. But that was a big takeaway. Your capacity for uncomfortable sitting in general is like in an entirely different universe than mine. You think so? Yes. I've always thought that you're like, I remember even when we would get office chairs, you'd be sitting in a not great office chair for a really long time before I'd be like, let's just get you a nicer one. I didn't realize that this was like a high tolerant that I I was so tolerant. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, so basically I went to a doctor and mm-hmm. they, and she was like, 
you have to stop doing this. Number one, you can get an x-ray if you want, but basically like you have to just stop <laughs> doing this. And then my sister-in-law introduced me to a product called the Comfy Life, which mm. is a, a deeply unattractive butt pillow. Did it give you the Comfy Life? It did. Until Claire this year, I started having tailbone pain again. And I was like, oh, what is happening? I can't do this again. Like, I don't understand. Thomas came in to this office and was like, that's because you sit on it wrong. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, it's supposed to face the other way. And I was like, wait, what? And yes, he's like, absolutely 100% right. Wow. But I need to show you because I, yeah, I need the visual. I need the I wanted, I wanted to know how you got. So basically it's one of those okay. chairs with the holes in it, right? So this is what it looks like. So I was sitting on it like that so that the- Well, it's like, weird because so it's shaped like a tooth. And it kind of is shaped like your butt and legs, to be honest. Right. So you would think that the little two prongs at the bottom are where your legs are supposed to go. Thank you. You know what else yeah. is really confusing? Hmm. The way that the branding, this beautiful cursive mm -hmm. Comfy Life logo yes. yeah. is written in a way that also makes me think that that would go towards the back of the chair. Yeah. Yeah. So that you could read it. Thank you. Uh -huh. I really appreciate this validation because Thomas <laughs> is like, you're a fucking moron. Why? <laughs> of course, the hole is where your like tailbone's supposed to go. And I was like, no, oh, the, my tailbone. So that your tailbone can sort of like drop down. Okay. Correct. But I was sitting on it like my you tailbone. You wanted your tailbone to be supported. <laughs> yeah. It's two approaches. So turns out when I turned it around, I solved mm -hmm. the problem. Well, over Thanksgiving, I see my sister-in-law and uh -huh. I was like, hey, get, she was like, oh, like, I feel like my company life is broken. And <laughs> she I was, was like, having the same problem. Well, because she's the one who ta taught me how to sit on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh. I saw it first at her house. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> now she didn't teach me. She wasn't like, let me show you. But it was like, she okay. had it wrong at her house. And then I mm -hmm. had it wrong at my house. And I was like, guess what? <laughs> turn it around. She was like, no. And I, I like, love that this became a family bonding moment. Yeah. So this comfy life, it works fine if you use it the wrong way for about okay. a year. And then it mm -hmm. works great if you use it the right way. I love that she's like, I thought it was broke. I think it's broken. I think, she's, I think it's broken. broken. Like it's, it's worn out. It's, it's done. It's done. Mm. But it's not. It's okay. Just... So you still endorse the comfy life pillow. Oh my gosh. And I love, I love living that comfy life. Okay. Um, good for you. The other thing related to my aging and ailing body that I invest, invested in much more recently is a new pillow for my head. So I was waking up every morning with this very intense like neck and shoulder pain mm -hmm. and definitely like related to like jaw stuff mm -hmm. and like grinding my teeth and all of that. And I did, you know, fell down the like Instagram rabbit hole of, or not even Instagram, just fell down the internet rabbit hole yeah. of what is the answer to this question and what are best pillows for side sleepers and stomach sleepers and like all of that. And came to like find out that basically this is not really like a discovery, but it was like a, it clicked for me for whatever reason. When you're sleeping, your spine should be in neutral. If you sleep on your side, the only way to do that is to prop your head up like mm -hmm. fairly high in order to achieve the like spine neutrality. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Otherwise, your neck's sinking down too much. Yes, yes, And yes. then you're getting this like neck, whatever yep. stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I landed on what felt like a very risky gamble, which is okay. a pillow called Hullo, H-U-L-L-O. Why did it feel risky? Is it final sale? No, and that's actually like Claret has a 60-day like return oh, nice. policy, which is like why I pulled okay. the trigger on it. It's risky because it is filled with buckwheat. And, what, and that felt like it was like going to... Well, I guess, yeah, you're used to a down pillow. I'm used to a pillow that's filled with non-buckwheat. Thomas made a lot of fun of this too. Apparently mm -hmm. he's like really anti- Does it feel like journey. it's filled with buckwheat? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. No, it's weird. Like, okay. It feels like it's filled with grain. Yeah. A little round. Like, okay. it's, not, it's not beanbag, but it's not not mm-hmm. beanbag. It's also very heavy. It's like very like physically heavy. That actually heavy. sounds appealing to me. Claire, Thomas made a lot of fun with me because there was like in the 90s, an infomercial pillow called the Sobakawa pillow that this is like more or less like a, a pure of okay. a, a relative of for sure. And he was like, why you bought like the cheese, like a cheesy infomercial pillow basically. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, like this is supposed to. That's and- what every DTC product is right now. It's a cheesy infomercial thing, but just on the internet instead of on TV at midnight. Thank you. Um, that feels validating to me, even though it was meant to, I know, be a diss. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, all, yeah, yeah. That's what all of the, I just bought yeah. a, a humidifier that 20 Could years have, ago. 20 years ago would have been, would have been on, an infomercial yeah, product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's just a fancy DTC product. Yeah. Fancy in quotes. Yeah. Yeah. Has a nice font. <laughs> so when this pillow came, I took it out of the box, saved the box. Cause I was like, there's mm-hmm. like a 90% chance yeah. that I'm sending this back. Like I like I'm preparing myself for that reality. Cause I don't want, I can't like be, I don't want to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. The first night after sleeping on this pillow, I woke up like the end of an infomercial. I was like, I have no pain. Why do I have no pain? I don't know. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I, every time I try a pillow that somebody really endorses and is this is the thing, I go right back to the absolutely disgusting, unsanitary pillow that I have had for, I don't know, like 15 years. And I like it because it's flat. Like I just like a flat as a pancake is so old, like really thin pillow. I think I sleep on my stomach. I don't know. And it's insane that I don't know. And the reason that I don't know, I think I'd sleep on all the sides. The only reason I think that does feel a little bit like something you would do. (laughs) (laughs) The only reason I'm guessing that I sleep on my stomach is because I remember being so frustrated when I was really pregnant that I couldn't sleep on my stomach. So I'm assuming Mm. that I'm, Mm -hmm. but I think I do it all. Well, that might kind of explain why a really flat pillow suits you because- well, because I just then you're, want then your then your head isn't then your head yes. Isn't. I find I think all these fancy pillows put my head up too high, and then I wake up with neck pain. From yeah, it totally being at totally. a weird angle. Totally, and I just want I don't want no pillow, but I want a really flat pillow, and I find that really hard to find new. So instead, I've just stuck with these same pillows for decades. I don't think you need a new pillow. I think your well, pillow is working when great we, for you. Remember when we talked to the GMM of bedding at Bed Bath & Beyond yes. and he was like, I'm sorry, that's really unsanitary <laughs> to have had the same pillow but for pillows can be years. washed. It's not yeah. like, it's, you know. It, I don't know I don't that know. I'm washing my pillows. I'm washing my pillowcase. Also, yeah. these are so old. I don't know if they could, if they could. If they could go in and out of a washing machine. Yeah. I also want to just close this out by saying that I have no recommendations for pregnancy pillows. So don't ask. I hated them all. Some people love them. Why did you hate them all? And they all have those like weird squiggle shapes too. I got both. I got the long kind. I got the squiggle shape. None of it made any sense for me. And I just, I probably couldn't figure out how to like appropriately straddle the thing, I guess. Uh You think maybe you were doing it wrong. Maybe it was your comfy life. Maybe. (laughs) It's probably my comfy life. And meanwhile, Chris was just like, cool, there's another person that's bigger than either of us (laughs) sleeping in our bed. (laughs) Should we move on to something else? Let's. Today, we wanted to talk about obligations and people-pleasing, which feel inextricably tied to one another. They feel like honestly the same thing, right? Yes. We've both... Well, it, this came up initially because we were ta- we were reflecting on an episode we did probably like six or nine months ago, certainly like first half of this year, where 
it seemed like things were going to start going back to normal post pandemic. And we were like, here's the things we want to leave behind in the pandemic. Here's the things we're not going to go back to. And a lot of it had to do with saying no to things that previously felt obligatory, whether that was like overbooking ourselves or just just traveling too much, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And then now here we are six to nine months later and we're like, things, things aren't back to normal, but uh, they're like closer to normal. And we're like, no, we've, we've done, we've fallen prey to all of those things. Fallen prey, fallen prey, feel a certain amount of like victimhood around it, which is like totally ridiculous. (laughs) Like absolutely ridiculous. These are all decisions I've made myself. Yeah. I am like, well, an adult. I, I mean, yes, they are all decisions you've made yourself. And I think the thing that, but at the same time, like you've made a lot of them because because of other people because of other people and I feel like that's kind of what we wanted to get into what makes something feel like an obligation versus not an obligation is it because you're doing it for other people I think in part because if you if it were completely up to you you would say no or if 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 you had your druthers you would say no and Mm -hmm. I think it's also hard because there doesn't it doesn't feel like gosh I don't know if I See that, I mean, this gets in like deep psychology. I don't know if I, if that's the definition for me, because I think what's hard is that if I really felt like that, I could say no, but I think making other people happy or meeting other people's expectations is so important to me. Sure. That I wouldn't say no because. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like. My point is if, if other people's feelings weren't on the line. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Then you would say no. Like it's not something you would do without the pressure of that. I mean, there's no universal here is the mm-hmm. thing too. It's like certain things that don't feel like obligations or struggles to you or to me would feel like obligations or struggles to other people. Like, yeah, no, it's different for everybody. I think the thing that came up the most for us has been social obligation and like, or just like obligations towards making people feel a certain way. And I think that really hit a nerve or it's hit a nerve for me because I've been so conscious lately of not only caring so much about what other people think of me, but about how I make other people feel, Mm. which is like two separate things that I definitely get confused sometimes or like fail to draw a distinction between. And I think caring what other people think of me is something I wish I could do less of, but caring about how I make other people feel does feel important. Yes, yes. But if you care too much, like if you take too much responsibility for how you're making other people feel. Because you also can't control people's feelings. Mm-hmm, exactly. Like, and you're not responsible for how other people feel ultimately. That's how you get into the situation where you're just like doing too much and neglecting yourself or neglecting the stuff that's important. Well, and I think what we've talked about and thought about some is that just being like COVID, being in lockdown, all of these things mm-hmm. changed. Mm-hmm so much about what our lives looked like, obviously. And there were so many things that had once felt obligatory that just like fell off, that were just like not even options anymore, like the overbooking, the going to the office, the like frequent travel, like all of those things. And we saw what it looked like to not have those things in our lives. And then Mm -hmm. we're like, oh, but why why do some of those things have to be that way? Obviously we're seeing this in the way that people are responding to going back to an office five days a week and like the LOLing a lot of people are doing about that. Like I'm not doing that again. That's like a very structural thing. And so much of this other stuff that I think you and I feel a lot of whatever Mm -hmm. reticence or feelings or or whatever about are like the personal decisions we're making every day about what does my week look like and how am I interacting with people and all of that. Well, it's tough too, because I do, I think, what you're saying is that basically we took away so many of the things that we thought were obligatory and the world to some extent kept turning. 
and and I and truly that's to some extent people were lonely, depressed, challenged in a lot of ways. It, weirdly, it wasn't a perfect answer. We were like, but the office does feel like the perfect example of like most, you know, a lot of people, a lot of companies and businesses and just work was able to continue more or less unscathed. And then now that we can go back to the office with some amount of comfortability, the question is why and why are people being compelled to? And same goes for, why are we overbooking ourselves when it turns out we didn't need to do that? And we could maintain a lot of our friendships without that. I think a lot of people expressed a sort of relief at like, oh, it's sort of nice not being so busy yeah. all of the time. Yes. Right. And we all said, I don't want to go back to having a drinks meeting every night. And then here we are doing it. And I think it's in part because when we nobody had seen each other for so long, we were all desperate to see everybody again. And and so that all happened at once. There was also the sense of, are we going to go into lockdown again? And we got to get it in while we can. And, you know, just so many things that like had been pushed to like the same moment where it's like yes. every wedding was happening during the same two to three months every and wedding. like family get together, mm-hmm. every whatever, because people were trying mm-hmm. to take advantage of what was seen as and like what very well could be a window where people could gather and feel okay about it or where some people could gather and some people could feel okay about it. But which just like, I think intensified it for me of just feeling like that zero to 60-ness of it where I'm like, oh, now I feel like mm-hmm. even more rattled because of how quickly this has turned back on. And, you know, just planning like Thanksgiving travel this year, I got extremely angsty about it and was just like, over the last 15 years, suddenly this became a holiday that like, how many people get on a plane for? Like, that's not historically what this holiday was. But now we just all treat it like, of course, you like, you know, you fly across the country for this four day weekend where everybody's traveling on the same couple of days. Everybody's paying an insane amount of money to do it everybody's, you know, running hotels or Airbnbs or crashing in their parents' house or whatever. And I just got to that point where I was like, why? Like, why can't this happen Mm -hmm. another day? Why can't, like, why can't I be with these same people and enjoying their company on another day? Why does, like, why does this level of, like, intensity need to come with it? Yeah. Yeah, you really got, this really came up for you about around the Thanksgiving thing. It was really like reached a fever pitch for you around that. And I think for me, it's been around others. I think it's just like navigating social stuff. I think for me, one thing that happened is that I didn't start doing family dinner until mm, the mm, pandemic mm. where, because it became realistic and because well, my was son eating solids. came old enough. Yeah. To like sit. He became a participating member. So <laughs> yeah. So it used to be, he would get, he would eat dinner. We'd put him down and then we'd have dinner ourselves. And now we have dinner as a family. And so I feel like I'm missing out on something bigger and it feels like a bigger ask for me to miss dinner and to not, and to do something at night. And so after now that I have that in my life, it feels even more challenging for me or or a bigger ask for me to miss out on that. And I'm questioning, you know, what makes it worth it? And, and of course I want to miss it sometimes, but I can't, I can't imagine going back to a world in which I'm out four nights a week, three nights a week. I mean, I know this is a completely impossible question, but do you, how do you think you would have felt about family dinner if you had had a year where you, where Cam was able to do family dinner, but you had your social life and schedule like you did before? It's such a great question because I, I'm really curious when I would have started it. It was something that I always knew I wanted to do. I It was like always my intention to start it because we did it at my house. And it's something that was an important part of growing up for me and that my mother puts 
way yeah. too much stake in. Like, we'll credit every parenting success she's had with the fact that we <laughs> ate dinner together yeah. every night. And I just am not sure that I would have, I think I would have waited a lot longer to start it because I would have thought that it was logistically impossible to pull because off. Because of the timing so, of like when he needs to eat. It, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Like his bedtime Yeah, and I mean, stuff. It, yeah. Exactly. One thing I think about a lot and did even before I had kids was one time we were getting together, we were trying to schedule a drinks meeting with Mm. Joanna Goddard of Cup of Joe. This was years ago. And we'd had drinks meetings with her before and like scheduled it fairly breezily or whatever. And I, and I suggested a time and she said something like, I no longer do things at that time because I don't want to miss dinner or bedtime with my kids or whatever. And it was clear that she had like decided at this point in her life, she was no longer doing drinks meetings during the week or whatever. And I, the way she said it was like so firm and clear and obviously not offensive to me in any and just way. Like, matter and I just of like fact. liked it and respected it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I, I pinned that mentally long before I had a kid of my own or was even sure that I wanted it. But I think I've always kept that in the back of my head as a like, that's something I can say. I think in general, like I also... I, ha- I probably have an easier time drawing boundaries around things that I feel are professional obligations versus things that I feel like are social For obligations. Sure. And I think I value my social life and my friends so Well, I also deeply. think there's, it, 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 it's a little hard because what is the right amount to see a friend? Who knows? Who really knows? Varied. And some yep. people, people have different expectations of what that means. And I have friends who I yep. think who would want to be on like a more frequent cadence than we're on. And I have friends who maybe are like, oh no, we're plenty good. Or like we could go longer or whatever. And it's just this like very specific individual sense of things that I think also does evolve with age too, or just proximity, right? Like friends in the neighborhood, I tend to see more obviously than friends who Mm -hmm. live an hour's commute away. Isn't it funny how, at least in my life, I feel like one of the most meaningful things a friend can say to you or, or you can say to a friend is you're one of those people who I cannot see or not talk to for a really long time. And then we pick up yes. you know, right where we left off, Yes, <laughs> which runs totally contrary to this idea that in order to express to one another that they're important, that someone is important to us, to you, you have to see yes, them regularly. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. And yet I know that my friends, I have certain friendships in which we don't see each other that long and they know exactly how important they are to me because when we do talk, it's meaningful. So meaningful. Yeah. 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 So I think the flip side of all of this that like makes it hard for me to sort of manage my sense of obligation around it is that one, I value friendship so much and I do believe that. Yes, of course. And so I do have that feeling that maybe it feels like an obligation, but it's important to me to fulfill that obligation because I value this friendship and I know that friendship takes work and takes putting in the time. And also the truth of the matter is 90% of the time when you're like, I just, I really want to stay home tonight. You go and see the friend and you feel so energized or fulfilled or restored by it. And you're so glad you did it. Right. And then two, I care how I make other people feel, people that I love. Like, and if I have a sense of like, my friend needs me in this moment and I don't feel fully up to it, or I, I don't want it. I still want to do it because it's very important to me to let them know that I care about them. And, and oftentimes like spending time or checking in or whatever feels to me like I, I, maybe that's my love yeah. language. I've always wondered what my love language is. Maybe that's my love language is like that that's the, that that's the way to do it. But it can yeah lead to a sense of sort of like exhaustion or just neglecting my own yeah. stuff or neglecting some, you know, other people, you know, yeah, family yeah, or whatever yeah. it is. What things feel like 
work obligations at this point, besides like the work socialization Mm -hmm. stuff. So I will say that one thing, and this will (laughs) just like harping on a theme here, something that no longer feels like an obligation that feels so good is worrying about employees' levels of happiness and if they like me and if they think I'm a good manager or a good boss. It was something that really weighed on me heavily when we had a team. And I found it really refreshing and just relieving, honestly, not to have that anymore. But I felt very obligated towards them in every way. And not just were they happy? Did they like me? Did they think I was good at my job? But am I doing right by them? And am I setting them up for success? And and, and even, you know, when we shut down Avakina, are we like sending them off into like the world in a good way? Are we setting them up with job prospects? Are we helping them find their next role? Those those are things I felt really obligated towards. And I, don't, I certainly didn't resent the sense of, are we setting them up for success? Are we no. sending yeah, yeah, them yeah. off to good places? But I would, I would get frustrated with how much I cared about whether or not they liked me and thought I was doing a good job. I think my life would have been easier if I could have uh, lessened yeah, that urge. Yeah. I think the thing that I really struggle to fight is an obligation to like the structure of a workday and the Mm -hmm. idea of being Mm -hmm. like at a desk in a chair from a specific time to a specific time and being available to people during that time. And even when like I have a light workload or even when I'm doing work at other times or even when the nature of my work Mm -hmm. that day or the project that I'm working on isn't sitting in front of the computer. And I don't, I, yeah. I don't know how to break that. I agree with you and find it really challenging. I also am someone who, when I feel pressured to do something, certain types of things, it makes me really less likely to do them or it gives me so much of a thrill to reject it. And taking the morning off to go do something personal in that way can feel so thrilling because of that. Um, I feel like we've talked about this very, very briefly on the podcast before, but this woman, Gretchen Rubin, has this like theory called the four tendencies around how mm-hmm. people uh, respond to pressure, whether it's internal, external pressure, both or neither. And so you are a questioner. You respond well to internal pressure and poorly to external pressure, mm-hmm. or at least based on yeah, my analysis. Yeah. And like, I feel like you just like you <laughs> yes. supported that claim. I think I got. I think I took. I think I took the survey after the last okay, time good. I talked about this or the questionnaire. And I so is Thomas. It's like the thing you. So is my brother. Mm-hmm. It's like the thing you all have in yeah. common, which is interesting to me. No, it's like it, in when it comes to certain types of things specifically. The more I am pressured to do it, the less likely I am to do it because I resent the pressure so much. The other thing I think that feels obligatory around work is just this like pressure to do more, more, more Mm. or on certain things that would benefit from less, like less people, less meetings, less output, like whatever, like this idea that like, well, we must fill this room or this energy, like whatever, Mm -hmm. like when instead taking the step back and considering the larger problem or the bigger picture is actually the answer to the question. So this is something that has really struck me as there, that I felt really freed of because we don't have a company with a capital C anymore. And as yes. you always like to point out, we do. We have a small media company between the podcast yeah. and the newsletter. We have we a have consulting, consulting company. But, but it's not, not, yeah, it, it's, it's not, it's not the public same. facing growth. Co- I, I mean, whatever, it is public facing, but it, it's, <laughs> it's different. It's not a company with a capital C and it's the only way I know, to, or a business with a capital B is the only way I know to think about it. It's not, it's certainly not a startup. And yeah. 
the thing when we were running of a kind that I felt obligated to do was keep up with the Joneses of the startup world and to notice that whether it was everybody else is doing a discount to sign up for your newsletter or everybody else is raising VC or everybody else is doing a panel or getting this type of press or using this customer service software or yes. whatever, 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 whatever. And there, there is this like chasing squirrels mm-hmm. component of all of that that yeah. does feel like obligation to me. Exactly. And I don't even think I like stopped to question them as obligations. It was just if this is how companies are growing and if we want this company to grow, we have to do these things or we have to at least try these things because these might be the answer. And I guess the distinction is, of course, we want the companies that we have now to grow, but we're not growth focused. Like it's not, it's not the point making this the biggest podcast it could ever be or the biggest consulting agency it could ever be. You don't think we're the next Joe Rogan? I could find commonality with Joe Rogan if you forced me to. It wouldn't feel like an obligation. I, but yeah, I think that I feel so freed of that obligation. I think even if we were to start another company with a capital C, I think I could probably resist that sense of obligation on some level to feel like we had to try all the things that everybody else was doing. Yep, yep. Okay, coming back to sort of like home life, relationship, family stuff. Mm -hmm. What feels like obligation to you around family and relationships? I mean, family and relationships specifically, I mostly think about parenting stuff. One thing that really stuck with me was this general narrative that's been like around helicopter parenting and the backlash to it. And this idea that people are coming to that like helicopter parenting and this over parenting in general is a kind of a new thing and it's not good for parents and it's probably not good for kids either. And I remember listening to this Fresh Air interview with Jennifer Senior who wrote All Joy No Fun about this like idea that like parents generally tend like statistically are unhappier than non-parents. And she made this point that like in the 50s and the 60s, if you were a woman who did not work and had kids, you were considered a housewife. Like you focused on your house and that was like- You weren't raising children. You were like caring for a home. Yeah. And now if you are a woman and you don't have a job, you don't have- Paid labor. Paid labor, right. But you do have kids. You are a stay-at-home mom. And this shift from like being a housewife to a stay-at-home mom is all about being super focused on being a mom. And so now also then you have women who are, who do have- do paid labor and have jobs and they feel the need to both keep up with the stay-at-home mom level of parenting and do their job and it breaks them. And I just, I didn't have parents who were helicopter parents and, you know, I have all sorts of flaws, but I don't resent them for not being all up in my shit in that way. And so I've always just felt like I'm not going to be so up in my kids' shit and that's going to be fine. And I also like the Shonda Rhimes book, The Year of Yes, mm. is was about her starting to say yes to everything, which is interesting in, in a conversation about obligation, but in a conversation more about <laughs> no's, but yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but part of her year of yes was that she decided that whenever her kids were going to ask her to play, she would say yes. And if that meant being late for something, it was fine because she was just going to play. She was going to set a timer for five minutes or 10 minutes and play princesses. And so I've always taken that tact of like, even if I don't feel like playing right now, I can definitely do it for five minutes and it's fine. And that's more than enough, honestly. And my kid can go be bored after that. So I think I've been okay in general. Oh, the other person I will quote about this, Tiffany Dufu, who we've Mm. talked about. We've talked about her book on this show before too. She wrote a book called Drop the Ball that was just like, the only way to be working, busy mom and survive is to just drop the ball and let other people pick it up and just be like, there's certain things I'm not going to do. And either it's fine and people can judge me for not doing them 
or my husband or somebody else is going to do them instead. And they're not going to do them the way I would, but it's fine. And I love because guess what? There's no like right or wrong way to load the dishwasher. It's a fucking dishwasher. And I, there's one example in that book that sticks out to me so much because it, it like, it, (laughs) it really called my name. And it was Mm. like, basically like she and her husband have a division of responsibilities as do Chris and I, and he deals with house stuff. So she, he's on a business trip and the faucet breaks and she's like, I need you to fix this. And from wherever he is, he manages within, I don't know, 12 hours to get somebody to house to fix a faucet, but it has to be replaced and it's replaced with an ugly faucet. And she is like so upset about the ugly faucet. And then she's like, no, I can't be upset about the ugly faucet. He dealt with it. He fixed it. And this is part didn't of do anything wrong. Ball. Yeah. And like, why do I care so much about the faucet? Because somebody else is going to judge it because it's not, she can like, I think letting go of it, which speaks to, I think a another big part of my sense of obligation of like looking a certain way, presenting a certain way, all of these things, like you just got to let drop those balls sometimes not feel obligated to present in that way in order to, to keep going. So I try for the most part to assume that even when I'm doing the bare minimum, I'm probably over parenting because I'm obsessed with my child. And so I'm not going to feel obligated to also do more. Although I, I told you the other day that when Chris does drop off. I'm obsessed with the fact that he just does drop off. I love that day care drop off. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet I did drop off one day and realized that all the other moms were bonding at drop off and that I was missing out on that and definitely had to have a moment of being like, do I need to do that so that I bond with the other moms so that Cam can be friends with the other kids and isn't left out of the play dates no. because I didn't bond? And I spiraled about it. So like, yeah, of course I'm not immune to it, but I also just know I'm like, I could not possibly do drop off. Like I, I. I love not doing drop-off and I'm thrilled Chris does it. And I just am going to have to miss, I'll find other ways. You'll find other ways. You'll find other ways. Yeah. A book that feels maybe a little bit related to drop the ball, at least, but more in the historical context is, I haven't read it, but it's called More Work for Mother, The Ironies of Household Technology from the Open Hearth to the Microwave. And there's a section in it about basically how back the, the innovation of vacuum cleaners and washing machines didn't save anybody any time because mm-hmm. all of a sudden there was a new standard of cleanliness and it was like, oh, well, now that we have these things like clean clothes, clean floors, like it was all of a sudden a moral obligation to have this like spotless carpet when you couldn't have that before. I mean, I'll get in more into this later because I've told you I'm obsessed with this book that I'm reading called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. It's time management for mortals. And it's like a sort of time management book that flips the other time management on its head. But the crux of it is all these time management books that are like telling you how to manage your time are just opening up the possibility for you to fill your time with other shit you don't want to do. So right. like, it's not the answer. You can pick up more obligations, like yeah. vacuuming more. Exactly. So now that you've vacuumed, you can also clean the grout in between the tiles. Yes, like, yes, it, it just, yes. It's, <laughs> yes, yeah. totally, totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something I think we're not going to spend a lot of time on because it feels like a very different sort of category of thing, but like community, moral, civic, and political mm-hmm. obligation. Mm-hmm. And I think like, honestly... The compelling thing here for me is to get rid of some of the other obligations in order to be able to fulfill these obligations. You know what yes, I mean? Yes. Like that that feel like they often get backburnered because they are more macro or they are, mm-hmm. they're like less like up in your shit. Totally. Totally. I was talking to our management coach about obligation recently and he basically compared it to a scale, like putting mm-hmm. the things that you really care about on one end and then the things that are obligations are taking away from the the tipping the scales in a way that gives less to the things that you do really care about. And yeah, this like moral obligation and civic obligation, all of that has to be, has to, there has to be room for it. There has to be room for it. Something else that I 
feel like I feel a lot and that you do certainly too, is just this sense of an obligation to consume a piece of culture, whether oh it's God, read the yeah. article, read the book, watch the show, da, 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 mm-hmm. da. And there was a really good installment of this newsletter called Dirt, where the writer Alex Asiman talked about tabs on a computer uh, mm-hmm. in a browser window. I have to just read this chunk. It's just great. I've realized that my eclectic mix of tabs is not actually a laundry list of interesting things I intend to look into in earnest. Instead, they represent the building blocks of the person I think I ought to be. If I were to read all those articles, order all those books, go to those French villages, I might finally become the person I always felt I should one day become. By collecting tabs, I'm hoarding aspirations. This tug of war between who I am and who I think I ought to be is the reason I collect tabs. Tabs are like a personal arcane archival system for obligations I am hoping to put off. The point isn't that I will eventually get around to looking at these tabs. The point is to hold on to the hope of one day getting to them before realizing I won't. These tabs, which at first look like the blossoming flowers of self-actualization, gradually morph into an oppressive force nearing 100. Working under these conditions is a dizzy, is as dizzying as working on a cluttered desk or in a messy room. I love this. I will say that tabs or articles like Bad Art Friend are precisely the type of thing that I react really poorly to be pressured Same. into. I didn't and read I, Bad like, Art Friend. Did you read Neither Bad did Art I. Friend? No. I love it. Congrats to us. Thank you. Congrats to us. And it was fine. I felt like... I could fully take part in the conversations. I understood what was going on. (laughs) Anything that Mm -hmm. is like monopolizing the culture Mm -hmm. conversation on Twitter. Like I'm better off reading something else completely, just consuming something else entirely that might spark a new idea instead of just this regurgitation of all the same shit. I also just, when it comes to books, I so often, so many of the books that everybody is really urgent you to read are sad and I don't like sad things. I'm never going to read A Little Life and I am fine with that. Oh, me either, Claire, me either. I am fine with that and you will, mm-hmm. I will never be tempted to. And it feels very good to just not feel the pressure to do it. Another obligation that I definitely struggle with is just the obligation to look a certain way. And I think part of the problem is that I don't always recognize it as an obligation. I think that it's like self-created pressure. And mm. I, and, and I think it's like actually important for me to understand that it's external pressure and it's like an external obligation. And I, and you don't like external obligations. I don't. You don't. Yeah. And so I, and I I think it's, it's really hard to make the distinction sometimes. And I don't, you and I have both shirked heels completely and that's felt incredible. And definitely when we were younger felt that the only way to express a certain level of like competence and competence (laughs) and growing maturity was to put on heels. Like the idea when I was 27 of going to an investor pitch, not in heels seemed crazy to me. No, there's nothing like, listen, I sometimes like a heel. Like I can like appreciate the look Mm -hmm. of a heel or whatever. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. But like, there's no article of clothing that feels more like an obligation than a heel. Yeah, (laughs) truly, truly. And I, I've, I've come to appreciate comfort on a whole new level, like I, which is the most sort of like trite thing for a woman nearing her forties to say about fashion. <laughs> um, but comfort is really important to me. Insert I our aerosols ad here. It exactly. Comes. <laughs> and the Eileen Fisher and all of it. But I love, I love that so many women went gray during the pandemic and have embraced it and decided that they're staying that way because I do think more than almost anything, the obligation to not go gray while you are a professional woman feels really 
intense. This gets back to the like idea of what is an obligation for some is not necessarily an obligation for others. Hard pants don't feel like an obligation to me. I like wearing yep. the jeans. That's yep. not it for me. But for many people, that's what like the last couple of years have have revealed. No pants with buttons. We're done. <laughs> We're done. We're done. How do you navigate all of like how how do you navigate feeling less obligated towards people? A lot of it is it it really can be just like, are there ways to like find other ways to show up? Okay, for an example, around the election, I feel like there was so much chatter on the internet about like phone banking and like canvassing and like doing these Mm -hmm. things in person and like anybody can do it and blah, 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 blah. Of course, anybody can do it. But some people are just not comfortable with those like modes. And so yes, other people can choose instead to like write letters or do other things that are like other ways to show up and just allowing yourself that permission to find those things that work for you. For me, I think I'm at this point where I'm like bachelorette party, like bachelorette weekends are like, Mm -hmm. I may be done with those. They are very challenging for me. And it like always feels like too much. They're that thing where you're hanging out with the other friends, friends for a long time. (laughs) Uh And like what I've done the last couple of times where I have opted out is figure out where people are having dinner on Friday night and sending the two bottles of champagne mm-hmm. and like being and like obviously that's not the same as mm-hmm. me being there but it is an acknowledgement that like I still care like it's not that I'm not celebrating this this moment in your life it's just I'm doing it in a different way I think it's also like one nice thing that comes with age is saying yes to the bachelorette party and realizing it makes you so miserable that the pain of saying no next time feels less painful cuz that it's a lesser pain than actually going. And I think like taking the time to be really honest with yourself, or at least that's it for me. I really hate disappointing people. But when I know that it's my only option, that I will just like be in such a frustrating position if I overbook myself or whatever it is, I can suffer the pain of saying no to somebody. And I think like the, the other thing would just be to like care less what other people think, you know, and to let people think I'm X, Y, Z and to be fine with that, which is a bigger, different journey to go on. I also, in general, I've talked about this old therapist of mine before who, who made such an impact on my life by telling me not to make decisions out of fear. Whenever I would use the word should, she would flag it for me the same way that when I was a teenager and I would say like, my mom would flag it for me because she felt similarly about it where you shouldn't feel that you should something. And, you know, there are a few things that you actually should do, whether it's you should feel a certain way or you should do something to just at least question it. Right. And so I'm trying to be better about questioning the things that I feel like I should do. I mean, I think something else that I've been trying to navigate or trying to think about is what are those things that just are really hard for me and that I know, like you were saying, I will, it'll, it'll pay me more to go through with the thing than to say no and setting up the rule around it mm-hmm. that I can express and saying, this is a thing I don't do. I also think as we get older, there's, we're allowed a certain amount of idiosyncrasies. Yeah. And that can be one of them, right? Like people are more accepting when you're just like, I know that this is fucking weird. I just don't do it. I don't do it. I yeah. Don't do, we're, yeah, we're old enough to be weirdos mm-hmm. or to like accept yeah. it being weirdos. I think, I think so. I spend so much time reflecting in, in conversations like this on my parents who really just have never done things just because they feel like societal or social obligations. And 
I think I've always just thought of it as when I was younger of just like, why don't they? And that's weird. And like, what's their problem? And I think some of it is also just like a certain amount of wisdom and having to prioritize certain things in their life and and choices that they made. And, and also growing up in a generation where there wasn't as much pressure to do it all, but realizing that yeah, to me, it might've seemed weird and maybe some people felt offensive by it, but they were just had to do what they had to do. Well, they also, your parents have both done an incredible job of protecting their lives and their hobbies and their like extracurricular mm-hmm. pursuits. Yeah. They like both have those things. Yes. It's something yes. that is much harder to have if you don't protect your time in those ways. You have to. I mean, we had that conversation with Mimi Ochan on a previous episode and asked her about cultivating her creative practice. And what she said is that at a certain point, she just started protecting it fiercely as if the same way she would protect time for a meeting with a client or whatever it is. And just understanding that her creative practice was an obligation to herself the same way anything else was an obligation to anybody else. And I think that that you have to treat the stuff you do for yourself as an obligation too. There was a really good installment of Anne Helen Peterson's newsletter called The Myth of the Productive Commute. And it made me think about this idea of like, is the answer actually just treating other things like obligations? Is it like, is that the trick? And there's a bit in it where she says, there's so many ways to give your mind permission to exhale, but you have to give yourself that permission and cultivate the time to do it and treat it with the same sort of obligation as you once treated your commute in order to make it routine. Otherwise, it will always be the first thing sucked into the game maw of work and domestic obligations. It's like that idea of like putting your exercise on the calendar or like yes. whatever and like it's making exactly it this, like this yeah. thing that you mm-hmm. have to do because otherwise you would be falling short of your own expectations of yourself. Right. And I think the challenge is that like, you know, quote unquote, society tends to be more understanding of you protecting certain things than others, right? Whether it's like family or exercise or whatever, you just have to under- say that it's this is my thing. And whether or not you see that as something worthy of protecting is not my problem, but this is the thing that I choose to protect. And yeah, I think getting back to that, just having a certain level of comfortability with not caring whether or not people think you're difficult to schedule time with, or you're prioritizing something not worth prioritizing, whatever it is. And also potentially putting less pressure on other people to feel obligated to you, which can be hard, of course, but you know, I ran into a friend of a friend recently who said that our mutual friend was in town and, and she was like very quick to had, had been in town and she was very quick to be like, I mean, he was just, he was only here for really brief. And, and I was like, it's fine. (laughs) Like a friend not telling you in town doesn't mean they don't love you. It just means that they're feeling pulled in a million different directions. And like, I don't know, just like the cutting people slack in that department. Definitely. To get back to this thing that Ben, our management coach said to me when I was talking to him about feeling a lot of obligation this time of year because it's the holidays and feeling like I owed a lot of people emails and needed to do this and that. He was like, can you reframe it and say and acknowledge that if you're doing those things, you are doing less of something that's important to you, whether, and and say, let's just say for the sake of the exercise, that those things are spending time with Cam and Chris and being present with them. And are you, do you feel good about saying, I'm going to spend less time with Cam and Chris so that I can send this insane email that doesn't need to happen? And can you just be like, the insane email doesn't need to happen and someone's feelings are going to be hurt because the insane email didn't happen, but it's totally okay because that person's level of importance in my life pales in comparison to Chris and Cam. And that does, that was a really freeing way to think about it for me because it the, the answer is always so clear. The other thing that came up on our recent show with Caroline of G Thanks Just Bought It was this idea of what happens if you don't. Oh, God, um, so important. I can't believe it took this long in the episode to talk about and that. And like possibly like 
the the companion to that, which is what do I what do I lose if I do? Or like, right. what happens if I do? Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't know. No, I think that what happens if you don't feels really, really important. And most of the time, the person will still be your friend. You will still be able to keep your job. The world will keep turning is the answer for the most part. Can we talk about this book you're reading that I feel yeah. like I need to read? I wish that I'd finished it because I feel like there's so much wisdom in it. And you're it, not obligated to finish that book before this podcast. Thank you. Thank you for framing me of that. So it's this book by Oliver Berkman and it's called 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. And it is a sort of play on all of these books like the four-hour work week and the getting things done and all these things. Everything Tim Ferriss has ever written. Exactly. And Oliver Berkman used used to have a column basically writing about all of these productivity hacks and he self-identifies as a former productivity geek. What this book does is sort of turn it on its head and say, all of those practices are futile because all you are doing is opening up room to do more stuff you don't want to do. The minute you get your in, your inbox to zero, you're just going to get even more emails. The minute you Because you sent out, out a lot of emails, tell right. you what. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The minute you figure out how to spend more time with your kids and more time with work and do it more efficiently, you're opening up more time for you to do something else you feel like you should do, whether that's exercise or volunteer or join the PTA or whatever. And his point is you will never be able to get it all done. Time is finite. Your life's not going to be perfect. You're never going to feel fully on top of it. That is a totally like futile exercise, pursuit. And you need to get comfortable with the fact that you're going to disappoint people. You're going to disappoint yourself. Not everything's going to get done. And that's part of life. And the like, sooner you can accept that, the happier you're going to be. And this book, again, just feels like I feel so, I don't know what the term that like Gen Z uses, but it's just like, it's, it's me where I'm like, I'm like, it is speaking to all of these things that I really struggle with. There's this passage in it that really uh, took me down. Rather than taking ownership of our lives, we seek out distractions or lose ourselves in busyness and the daily grind so as to try to forget our real predicament. Or we try to avoid the intimidating responsibility of having to decide what to do with our finite time by telling ourselves that we don't get to choose at all. And like that telling ourselves that we don't get to choose at all was really like, whoa, I do that because there are all of these things that I say I would like to do and I feel that I couldn't do, I don't have the time to do because I possibly, yeah. But in fact, like I am choosing, I'm choosing not to spend more time pursuing a creative practice because I'm choosing to feel like I have to do all these other things instead. And it's just, there's never going to be enough time to do all the things that I feel are important. So the only actual answer is to say what feels the most important and understand that some things that do feel important are just never going to happen. I also like the, the the answer being there's no way to solve it. Um, it's been really freeing for me. And his point yes. is like, it sounds kind of depressing and like nihilist at first. No, and then you're not. like, it doesn't. No. you're like, no, it's, it's such a relief to be yeah. like, it's okay. Because then you can stop searching for the answer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the show. This has been a production of Dear Media. And we are so grateful to the talented team over there for helping us make this podcast happen, especially to our wonderful producer, Ali Slice. You can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. And if you have ideas for our show or want to advertise, email podcast at a thing or two HQ.com. Find show notes and sign up for our newsletter at a thing or two HQ.com too. If you love the show, consider supporting it by signing up for a secret menu also at a thing or two HQ.com. 